Welcome back to El Nino Speaks, everyone. I'm here with Patrick Casey of Restoring Order. What's new with you, man? Hey, thank you for having me on, Jose. Uh, what's new with me? Not a lot. Just grinding away with the content. I'm streaming on the Restoring Order channel, writing for Chronicles, American Greatness, American Sun, and you know, networking, meeting people, you, yeah. watching the world go progressively more insane and... Just trying to, you know, make a difference in whatever way I can. Yep, the usual routine. But yeah, right, yeah, right. great stuff you're doing there. Now, could you tell my audience more about yourself before we start digging into the meat of the show? Sure. So I've been involved in dissident politics for a few years, and uh, basically, I got involved in 2016 when Trump ran for office. Although I had been you know, moving in this direction for, for years before that. And I mean, I've done all sorts of stuff these days, just focused on content, networking, trying to introduce people, do what I can. So that's uh, basically an overview there. What would you say got you into politics in the first place? Was it Donald Trump's first presidential run or was it a different set of issues? Yeah, I would say it was building up since... I mean, with 2012, you had the George Zimmerman shooting, justified shooting, I would argue, of Trayvon Martin. And, you know, I that's when I started looking into various, various places on the internet, discussion forums, where people were discussing this stuff and being able to get a perspective outside of that of the mainstream media. And, you know, that started, I, I just saw how disingenuous the media framing of that situation was. They were acting like, George Zimmerman, who was a Hispanic, was, you know, this crazy white racist, this, that, and the other. I mean, CNN was literally lightening his face in some of these videos and thumbnails and acting. And, and, you know, when I looked at that case, I saw a guy whose neighborhood had been subject to uh, an ongoing series of, of robberies, and he wanted to keep his neighborhood safe. And I just, you know, instinctively was like, okay, I'm, I'm generally on this guy's side. And then you look into it, and Trayvon Martin was bigger than George Zimmerman, knocked him to the ground, was on top of him, punching him in the face, and only at that point did George Zimmerman use fire his firearm in self-defense. And to me, that seemed very clear-cut. Very clear-cut. In a civilized society, you have the right to defend yourself. So that was, what, 2012? Then you had the Ferguson riots, really the birth of Black Lives Matter. And I just looked at the anarchy on display. I wasn't a conservative. I didn't consider myself conservative, Republican, and uh, really much. I didn't have a political identity, but I just looked at all of that and I said, no, this is no good. And then, you know, I just kind of wasn't as interested in politics, really. Nothing really clicked. There didn't really seem to be much happening in the, in kind of a bigger picture sense. Cause I looked at, yeah, I, I saw that stuff and I was against it, but then I looked at Mitt Romney and those types. And I was like, these guys are goofy. I'm not interested in this at yeah. all. Uh, but yes, 2016, like many people, Trump injected a new sense of life and meaning into right-wing politics, also into left-wing politics. He definitely galvanized the other side, which is to our detriment. But yeah, Trump brought back this sense of civilizational politics. We're not just debating marginalia. We're talking about the real core civilizational issues. And that's really what got me inspired to start making content, to start meaning people going to Trump rallies, things of that nature. So from what I could gather, you didn't really have like a libertarian phase or like a neoconservative phase. Because in my case, I came into this mostly into politics, like through like Ron Paul. But I also like simultaneously was following like Pat Buchanan and people like Alex Jones. So I always had those like nationalist inclinations and like in the background. But you, you were just like more kind of like, like politically apathetic, but you knew something wrong was going on when you looked at like the news and all that stuff. Am I correct there? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I've been somewhat interested in politics for some time, but you know, I'm 33 now going back to when I was 18. I remember listening to Alex Jones and liking it. I would say I had a really lazy, half-baked, maybe libertarian perspective. I never, back then I never read any of the libertarian theorists, uh, Rothbard, Hoppe and so forth. But I did, I did like Ron Paul back when he was running for office, and 
I had vague anti-establishment sentiments. I think that's the best way to describe it. I knew that there was something wrong with the people running things. I was against the Iraq war and the invasion of Afghanistan. But I mean, in college, I, you know, I studied anthropology and yeah. most of your listeners are probably familiar with the, yeah, the yeah. state of anthropology. I've took several classes in, in that field. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it was so. So when I'm a little older. I'm sure for if there, if there are any Gen Z people here who have taken an anthropology class, they're probably subjected to a lot more of the uh, racial justice stuff. Back when I was in college, there really wasn't that much. There was it, all of my professors were basically left wing, but it was more kind of a lukewarm Marxist, you know, the, the banks are bad, the corporations yeah, are bad. Yeah, class reductionist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it wasn't even that that hardcore. It was just, you know, a sense that the Republicans were bad because they wanted to take away people's health care and whatever. And I probably picked up some left-wing views in that sense. I was never a Bernie bro or a socialist or anything of the sort. But I mean, you could be, hey, you can be right of center and critique things the corporations are doing and the bankers are doing. But you know, we recognize that the civil rights uh, regime is is uh, probably has more of an influence on the other institutions. I, I I don't think that the corporations are the central, like the nexus of all of this leftism that we see. They they definitely deserve to be blamed. But you know, the the way anyone interested in this should read Caldwell's excellent book, Christopher Caldwell, The Age of Entitlement, which talks about um, really how the civil rights civil rights law is responsible for taking most other, you know, civil society, the private sector, business sector, and rendering it woke, basically. And I think that prior to Caldwell's book, that dynamic was was under discussed. But yeah, you're correct that I wasn't, I didn't really have much of a political identity. I liked Alex Jones. I liked some stuff like that. You know, I was into, you know, just kind of the, you know, the, there, around the time of Occupy Wall Street, there was this centrist, I would say, or bipartisan anti-establishment movement, so to speak, uh, that was that was in a nascent form. And I, I identified with some of that as well. I thought that the country was gutted during the 2008 financial crisis, and to a large extent it was, although leftists will tell you that, that that's just because of the predatory loans and lending, and it's just the financial institutions. Whereas I think most of us here, we can, we can say, yeah, a lot of there was a lot of that. There was a lot of corruption and and greedy behavior on behalf of these financial, uh, these larger financial entities. But at the same time, again, going back to the state's role in this, well, what happens was the government decided as part of these diversity programs, the Community Reinvestment Act, which I believe happened under Clinton and many other similar measures and policies, they determined that it was racist to deny loans to minorities, home loans to minorities. Who couldn't afford them. Obviously, plenty of minorities can afford home loans, but lower income, it was viewed as a social justice issue to ensure that these low-income people, who I think were disproportionately, maybe all minorities, because they were framing it in a racial sense, that these people, ha- they had to get loans. They had to get loans. Okay, so we gave loans to a bunch of people who, home loans to mortgages, to a bunch of people who couldn't afford it, and lo and behold, they ended up defaulting. So that's where you have the the state that is to blame and the left won't talk about that and the, you also have the financial institutions which were to blame and sure the left will talk about that but they don't have they don't have really a holistic and all-encompassing analysis of some of the problems that the right and the left can agree exist and that's that's one of the many reasons why I never became a leftist is because you know you eventually find out oh there's this whole field of political reality and and other realities that the left refuses to acknowledge. And I've always considered myself a free thinker. I've never been someone who's who wants to toe the line. Not that I'm some kind of extreme contrarian, but as a result of that, if someone's telling me that, you know, there's some aspect of reality that you can't acknowledge, you can't talk about, then I, I'm going to be inclined not to join up with that person's coalition and to, to, to view it with apprehension. So I like the way Steve Saylor describes the housing collapse of the aughts as the minority mortgage meltdown. That is probably <laughs> the most apt That's way. good. I actually haven't seen him or heard him say that, but that sounds like a Saylorism. He's very yeah. very pithy and, and eloquent in the way that he coins some of his terms. <laughs> yeah, I've seen, uh, I've just like scrolled through some of like his older works on VDARE. 
with regards to the housing collapse. And yeah, I actually agree with you about the civil rights revolution. In fact, one of the reasons I became a hardcore Ron Paul supporter back like 07, 08 was his opposition to the Civil Rights Act because it is not only an act of dispossession directed towards the historic American population, but it's also a violation of the freedom of association. And that's one aspect of politics that it's been a blind spot for the American right. And I'm very glad that Christopher Caldwell has called attention to that because for too long, Republicans have generally accepted a lot of like the left's premises on that issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have gathered some themes from your show about like several of the issues that animate the nationalist right. And they go across the spectrum of economic nationalism, for one, immigration restrictionism, and a restrained foreign policy, among others, obviously. Of these issues, which would you say is the most important for you? Okay, so of all of the political issues that are discussed on the nationalist right, as you termed it, previously, I would say immigration. And that's still obviously a huge one, because at the end of the day, it's almost historically unprecedented to alter your country's demographics in the way that America's demographics have been altered since the uh, 1965 Immigration Act, right? Hart Seller. This is something that Americans were explicitly promised, I believe by Ted Kennedy, probably by others, that changing the immigration laws in 1965 would not alter the demographics of our country. And lo and behold, it did. So this was enacted through, you know, sleight of hand, basically. Prior to that, we had, you know, the immigration laws throughout American history have have changed. We've had large periods of, of immigration, uh, followed by periods of assimilation, in those previous periods, it was largely from Western countries. Obviously, America has never been 100% white, but you know it was a sense of you're bringing in people from similar parts of the world. You're not, you know, op- throwing open the border to the Middle East or or to, you know, the Congo or something. And I, I have genuinely nothing against people in other countries of other races. I don't think America needs to be 100% white or anything of the sort. But his history is full of examples of what happens when you cram a bunch of people with wildly different conceptions of reality, of morality, of culture, religion into the same place. And uh, it's not a good model. You can have what I've learned from studying history. And, you know, there's a lot of sociological research that's been done on the the ramifications of and consequences of diversity on society. I can point to Putnam's research and really just dozens, if not hundreds of other studies that have been done on ethnic diversity, and they all show that it is basically a net negative. People trust each other less. People participate in community less. And one thing Robert Putnam found in his research on this was that it's not just people in increasingly diverse areas. It's not that they just distrust other groups, other ethnic or racial groups, religious groups, less it's actually that they trust their own groups less. They participate in, well, I, th- I think actually what he said was that they participate in their own communal activities less. It's not just, oh, well, if I, if there are people of different groups coming into my neighborhood, I'm not going to go to their events. It's just that it actually kills community for basically everyone involved. So I think there's some totally permanent and unchanging truths to the anthropological truths to the nature of man that no amount of liberalism, of leftism, of diversity propaganda can really change. So those are the issues with immigration. Obviously, the Great Replacement has has grown in salience on the right. Tucker Carlson, others talk about this, which is a fantastic development. And that's something I've been talking about and many others on the dissident right since 2016 and used to have the more establishment, even, even in MAGA, right-wing figures and pundits calling you a racist for doing this. It used to be that not only the left, but you had right-wing people. But a lot of people have taken a turn for the better. I think they've been red-pilled by reality. And also the distant right has blasted these ideas into the foreground. So it's a good thing. But to qualify that, so immigration, obviously, you know, because you talk about all of the other aspects of decline, the economic stuff, and, you know, the, the moral rot in, in society, the promotion of child transgenderism and anti-masculinity and all of that, it's actually far easier to recover from that as bad and as 
harmful as those policies and those ideas might be, it's far easier for civilization to recover from that than it is to recover from just this permanent demographic change. And again, there's nothing, I would say most immigrants coming here are probably reasonably good people, but it's just not a good model for society. I think that's the best way to do it. And you don't have to be white to reach that conclusion. There are many non-white Trump supporters, right wingers who who have basically said, yeah, if, if if you know if we just keep continue mass immigration from all sorts of different parts of the world, you know that's gonna that's gonna create a political nightmare. I don't think that we're headed towards civil war or anything of the sort, but I, I do think that politically it's just not a good model. It's not a good model, and so that's that's my take on the immigration situation. But I would say that what I've realized after studying Curtis Yarvin and history a lot of the neo-reactionary thinkers, is the right needs to be focused on power more than anything else. Because you can look at the individual policy issues from uh, reining in uh, the, the civil rights regime, right, ending affirmative action, and doing away with mass immigration, illegal immigration, legal. You could talk about any any policy issue that the right is concerned with right now. And if the goal is to change that, you actually, there are prerequisite goals that need to be achieved prior to that change being lasting. Trump, I don't think, gets enough credit for what he did, particularly in 2020. He cut immigration. He signed an executive order banning critical race theory. He ended AFFH, which is a program to bring in low-income housing to uh, you know quaint, <laughs> idyllic suburban areas. He did, he did a lot of good stuff, but it was all most of it was undone. Most of it was undone. He had the executive order on critical race theory that was undone. Uh, the changes to immigration, the remain in Mexico policy, all of that was undone very early on in the Trump administration. Uh, pardon me, in the Biden administration. That was some, some of the first things Biden did, even if going back to like the first week or two. So I, I think a real lesson there is that fundamentally we need to alter the power dynamics in this country. We The left has institutional control, this massive, ever-expanding federal bureaucracy and you know the institutions in civil society as well, uh, the NGOs. You also have uh, the, the mainstream media, academia, so on and so forth. We're all familiar with uh, the institutions that are against us. It's almost all of them. I think the lesson really there is that yes, we need to. We should end immigration. Yes, we should do away with critical race theory, with LGBT indoctrination, particularly in schools. Do away with institutionalized wokeness. Yes, yes, all of that is good. But in order for that to happen. There needs to be permanent change in the structure of the government. And that's why, I mean, James Burnham's The Managerial Revolution, Sam Francis, a lot of this stuff is really mandatory reading for understanding the nature of the state that we're dealing with. We're not dealing with the the federal government of the 19th century, right? We're not, the country isn't being run by, it's actually not being run really by oligarchs. There are oligarchs who have a lot of power, sure. But ultimately, there there is something above the level of capital, of money, the capitalist class that has more power over them. And that that is this managerial state. So that is, I think, really needs to be the main goal. This whole, you talked about, Trump talked about draining the swamp. Yeah, that's that's what needs to happen. Now, if in the meantime, you are pursuing some of these policies, that's fine. By these policies, I mean the you know, the single issue policies like mass immigration and critical race theory, things like that. If in the meantime, you're working to reverse those. I, I think that's fine. There are some hypothetical things that we could do in the run-up to, uh, with you know, with the end goal still being changing the structure of the government, undo, you know, diminishing the power of the left's castles, so to speak, their institutions. Uh, but there are also other things that you could do in the meantime that don't bring us further to power. They seem like short-term wins, um, but they actually make it harder for us to get things done. They make it harder for us to change this power dynamic. So that's really my perspective at this point. And I, I hope to see that I hope to see that grow because if we're just focused on these single issues, we're not seeing the big picture, which again is that you can achieve wins on a whole number of issues. And even if it isn't immediate, even if it, you know, you get something like a Supreme Court ruling, you get Congress to pass legislation, good luck, right? Even with the Republican majority in the House and the Senate, well, that that all eventually can still be undone, even if it's a few decades from now. We have to be thinking long-term. What are the preconditions for long-term change? And ultimately, it is a fundamental restructuring of not only the government, but of civil society as well. I can definitely relate to this because I come from a 
lobbying background specifically with a grassroots Second Amendment organization. And its approach is very much multi-generational. It's not focused on just election cycles per se. And it is power-oriented. Ideas are good. They are very much a prerequisite for launching any viable political campaign, but they are not like the alpha and the omega of politics. You have to be able to like mobilize people and dish out political pain against those who work against your interests at the end of the day and build coalitions with people who uphold your interests. So that's like, I do agree that ultimately the right has to embrace like prudential power or it's just going to get stomped on by the cultural left. Now, one thing I've noticed since the Biden regime was able to install itself in power, there's been a good deal of discussion about the concept of, quote unquote, Trumpism after Trump. And this especially holds true with the rise of other prominent figures such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What do you make of this concept of Trumpism after Trump? Do you think it's legit or could it be potentially a diversion? That's a fantastic question. I'm glad you asked that because that's something I've been thinking about extensively lately. Well, I would say this. You have two main camps and I'm kind of in between them. The first is Trump or nothing. Trump or nothing. I've heard people say if Trump's if Trump's not part of the equation, they're not even going to vote for the Republican Party. I'm not I'm not at that point. If they run Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, uh, some yeah. of these uh, proverbial <laughs> rhinos. Right. Uh, I, I don't know how much I'm going to support that. Uh, I, I will say, though, there is there is some merit to holding the line, so to speak. You know, if when the Democrats have complete power, there's really no telling the damage that they can do. So Maybe I, I'm growing somewhat boomer-esque in my uh, phrasing that it's not that I will take any Republican over the Democrats, but it somewhat doesn't have to be as great as Trump for me to support them. Uh, if they're going to do some good things, if they're at least going to prevent for four to eight years even more, I mean, really, it's if we're in an ugly situation. And state power, the more we have, generally, generally the better. But yeah, so Trumpism without Trump, you have the people who say they're not, they're not going to support anyone but Trump. Right, there's no point in voting. They're not going for DeSantis, whatever else. And then you have the other people who are saying that we need Trumpism without Trump now. But right? basically, that even while Trump still has a shot, as long as he doesn't get indicted and convicted, really convicted, uh, which is uh, really anyone's guess at this point, as long as he doesn't get convicted and he can still run, he will run. But nonetheless, you still have people who are favoring DeSantis. Now, I don't think DeSantis will ever run against Trump because he, by all appearances and whatever critiques might exist of him, uh, real or perceived, valid or invalid, it's very clear that, well, I think it's pretty clear that he's not going to run against Trump, right? Trump is still the favorite from the base. All of these polls have been coming out since 2020, uh, showing that Trump is by far uh, the favorite. You could find an occasional one, I think generally with a smaller sample size, that might say that people like DeSantis more, but I, I don't really, I don't think that's representative. So when it comes to that question, I think kind of in between, as long as Trump is in the game, Trump has my support, but I think that Trumpism without Trump is going to have to happen eventually, unless you are counting on Trump becoming president for life in the event that he runs and wins in 2024. And I think that's pretty unrealistic. I think that's very unrealistic unless he, yeah, right. Unless he founds uh, he wins and founds a con uh, you know hereditary monarchy or something, which is let's face it, not going to happen. Then you have to accept that eventually there someone's going to come after Trump. And the question, uh, uh, you know, really is who will that be? Now, as to DeSantis in particular, I think he's a pretty good governor. I think he's done some pretty good stuff, and it would be great to have. Who Arnold McIntyre I think said, you know, he'd rather have ten Governor DeSantis's than one President DeSantis. And I think it's important to keep in mind that we see DeSantis doing good stuff as governor. Doesn't necessarily mean that would translate over well in the presidency. Doesn't mean that it wouldn't, but just because someone's doing something good as governor doesn't mean that they're going to be a fantastic president. And with Trump, plenty of critiques to be made of his first administration, uh, the first term of his administration, maybe the only one. We'll see. But I think the, a lot of lessons were learned. I think he went into it and didn't really know what to expect. But I think a lot of the staffing stuff got better late 2019, early 2020. And 2020 really was the best year 
I already went over some of the stuff he did, banned critical race theory at the federal level, and he right restricted immigration. AFFH, I think, was late 2019, early 20. And, you know, he banned earlier, he banned trans troops in the military. He did, he did some pretty good stuff. But um, also, he doesn't get enough credit for actually doing something about big tech. Now, a lot of this stuff was was too late, which is the real tragedy of Trump not getting what I would view as a rightful second term. You know, a lot of people say, oh, Trump did nothing about big tech and whatever else. OK, he waited too long. What he was doing was was good, though. Basically, what he did was he was working on getting a three-fifths majority in the FCC. The FCC at the top has five people, and he withdrew the nomination of uh, one of these one of these rhino types uh, because he wasn't willing to side with Trump and really the 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 right in this country on the issue of tax censorship. He thought that the free speech rights of the corporations, right, the the big tech companies, were took precedence. They needed to be defended. Okay. So Trump withdrew his nomination. He nominated someone else. He convinced another person to get the three-fifths majority. I believe it was the chairman. He was the main guy at the FCC, Indian fellow. And uh, that guy ended up coming around to, to Trump's side, to our side on the tech censorship issue after the whole the fiasco of the banning of, of articles about Hunter Biden's laptop. Right, It was a New York Post article that, twi- that Twitter was banning and whatnot. So that actually convinced him to do that. So the third guy, in order to get that three-fifths majority, ended up, he was in his nomination process, an approval process. I believe it's a congressional approval. Been some time since I've looked into that. He was undergoing that approval process during the contested election. So it, w- it would have been great if a lot of this stuff happened in 20, right, 2017. But I, I think a lot of these lessons have been learned. So I think that if we look at 2020, that's a better projection for what Trump would be doing were he to get into office. I think his team learned a lot of lessons. I think he learned many lessons as well. Now, let's say Trump's out of the equation and DeSantis is the guy. Um, and it's there's always a potential, 2016 show, there's always a potential that someone you never considered running for office could run for office and and win. So, but right now it, it's looking like it would be, if it's not Trump, right, if Trump gets convicted, you know, heaven forbid, then it's probably going to be DeSantis. And I think DeSantis definitely has more. I think he might be the institutional favorite. Like the hardcore, the, the the hardline GOP establishment would probably prefer someone else. But a lot of con ink and populism ink, one might say, uh, would would prefer DeSantis. I think it's fascinating, given that DeSantis will probably never run against Trump. It's fascinating to that that dilemma that that choice which I, again i don't think voters are ever going to have between trump and desantis is fascinating insofar as it reveals quite a bit about the people saying it and some of the people who are supporting desantis uh they're people who were not supporters of trump in 2016 there were people that jumped on the bandwagon just because it was politically advantageous to do so and i really look back to the spirit of 2016 right the spirit of 2016 as being what we should be what what we what we should be fighting for, and the fact that people weren't on board with that and are really enthusiastic about DeSantis uh, makes me apprehensive. But the last I'll say on DeSantis is he's called for reducing legal immigration, which is a good litmus test for how worthwhile a Republican politician is. Not just you know anyone can talk a big game about border security. Even the Democrats talk about it. They don't they don't actually walk the walk, so to speak, on that particular policy issue. But it's it's low hanging fruit to critique people streaming into the border. And, you know, overseeing on their visas and whatnot. But when it comes to actually restricting legal immigration, which is critical to reversing this harmful demographic change, that's that's very important. So DeSantis is good on that. He's good on the LGBT and critical race theory stuff in schools. You know, he has used state power in interesting ways. Sure. But I think we should be a little more let's People on the right should be, I, I don't think necessarily anti-DeSantis. We should definitely prefer Trump over DeSantis, but we should be kind of apprehensive about some of the types who are really saying that we need DeSantis, not Trump. Uh, a lot of these people think that he's a lot safer. He's a lot more establishmentarian. And we should just keep in mind that just because he's doing good stuff now does not mean that he necessarily would. And you know, when Trump's out of the equation, the last I'll say on this, when Trump's out of the equation, there are going to be real attempts to roll back some of the more based and red-pilled, so to speak, 
changes culturally and in terms of policy advocacy that Trump brought about. And I, I don't know if DeSantis would be willing to push the envelope and willing to be at the very least as based as Trump if Trump is rotting in a jail cell or just totally tapped out of politics. So we'll see. We'll see. But I, I would definitely prefer Trump over DeSantis. Yes. Yeah. Just to continue with the talk of like DeSantis being a potential challenger to Trump, um, I'll just qualify this, that I'm not as harsh as on DeSantis as some people that said, I am much more concerned, namely about the people who are gravitating towards DeSantis and who will likely staff key positions. Do you get the suspicion that Populism Inc. is converging around DeSantis and trying to use him as a vehicle for some watered down nationalist agenda? I would say yes, but... I mean, if the things he's talking about doing, he actually does, like restricting legal immigration, actually happen, then, you know, the fact that Populism Inc., some of the more establishment forces on the right, are supporting him, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me. But you could argue that because those forces really want him and not Trump, they probably think that we can revert to, they can, they can convince DeSantis to revert to a more establishmentarian form of politics. But again, if Trump's out of the equation and someone, be it DeSantis, is a little more of an establishment guy, and nonetheless, he's calling, you know, if he actually gets elected and, and reduces legal immigration, bans critical race theory, does a lot of this stuff that we want, doesn't start any new wars. Um, although I don't know, I don't think he would be as good on as, as Trump on foreign policy. Then, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, you can't make the perfect the enemy of the good. But in so, again, as long as Trump is part of the equation, as long as he is a potential candidate, then, you know, then, then that's that's my choice. Yeah, actually, even like on foreign policy, DeSantis is not as good on as Trump. But when you look at the other alternatives within the GOP, like Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo and all of that, DeSantis looks very tame. That's just like how bad the mainline GOP is that like the, the rest of the GOP is very likely going to like adopt a populist guard, but still have a neoconservative like substance to it. It's going to just have like different aesthetics because that's just like the new political reality we're in. Like give me Trump or DeSantis like any day of the week over the rest of the invade the world, invite the world crowd that congregates around the GOP. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's yeah. And just because DeSantis has maybe a little more institutional backing at this point, there's some establishment forces who would prefer him over Trump doesn't doesn't mean that does, right there. You have to look at this thing as as kind of a spectrum, and there are people who, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't vote for Nikki Haley. We talked about this before. Would I vote for any Republican over the Democrats? No, no. I just out of principle, I wouldn't vote for Nikki Haley. Wouldn't vote for Mike Pence. Wouldn't vote for Marco Rubio. Wouldn't vote for these types. But you know, there's always the potential that a current congressman, senator runs. I would support Gates. I would support Gates for president. Uh, I think that he was he was really done dirty with the sexual misconduct allegations. I didn't see any any evidence of of criminal wrongdoing there. The guy had some younger girlfriends who were above 18. Okay. Well, you know, if if the purity test is being uh, entirely saintly in that regard, well, that would disqualify Trump as well. But, you know, I would support someone like Gates. I would support someone like I don't know. There there aren't many others that could conceivably run and win that uh, you know, but yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right that there. That's you could do a lot worse than DeSantis. You could absolutely do a lot worse, and the GOP would love to get someone who is uh, nowhere near as good as DeSantis, let alone Trump, in there. So we have to be wary of that for sure. To build off your point with regards to Gates, are there any other figures in particular that you believe could actually be good successors? to Trump, like they not only promote good policies, but they have like the right people surrounding them? That's a good question. I did I did kind of mention Gates. I don't know if he would run again, just because I think the, the, the media might go for him. Again, I don't think he did anything wrong. I don't think he did. He definitely didn't do anything criminal from what I've seen. And but, you know, that that is just a PR item uh, could be could maybe maybe dissuade him from running. I'm not sure. You know, I like Gosar. I, I couldn't imagine him running. I like MTG. 
And she's very popular. The base loves MT. The, they, they love MTG. There's some parts of her style, I would say, that rub me kind of the wrong way. Although I, I think she takes a hardline stance on the issues that matter. I'm pretty sure she advocated for or actually introduced legislation to ban for an immigration moratorium, which is fantastic. That is that is where we need to be. Absolutely. So if it's MTG, I, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't I don't know if she would run though. <laughs> but when I look at I, Tucker, is kind of Tucker would be great. Uh, but every I don't know Tucker. Never spoken to him. But just through the grapevine, I hear that he's not really interested in in being president. Maybe circumstance could change that. It's really hard to say. But at this point, really, it really does seem like Trump and DeSantis are the only. The only options. So time will tell. Time will tell. I'm not going to make the perfect the enemy of the good, but I'm not going to support someone if they're not willing to restrict immigration and particularly reduce the size of the federal bureaucracy, make it easier to fire all these career bureaucrats who sit around scheming to destroy the country. One, you know, Schedule F was a great thing that Trump did as well. If we're talking about Trump's wins or attempted wins in 2020. That was something he was working on, what, October 2020? Uh, Schedule F, which would have made it easier to fire a whole class of, not even easier, just possible, right? You can't fire some of these bureaucrats. It's hard to drain the swamp when you can't fire these people. And, you know, really when you talk about creating a new government and changing the structure of the government, a lot of what that entails is firing people, sending them home peacefully, who are regime operatives and bringing in new people, right, for the new style of government, so to speak. So something like Schedule F could be pretty good. I've talked to people who are apprehensive about the potential for Schedule F to actually work. Time will tell, but that stuff needs to be attempted. A lot of this is A-B testing. How can we change things for the better? How can we How can we beat the establishment? And, you know, we're going to learn some lessons the hard way, some things you're going to throw up at the wall and they're going to fail, but something like if, if, you know, someone DeSantis wanted to do something like Schedule F, wanted to reduce the size of the federal, you know, go after these rogue national security agency institutions, right? These agencies, I should say, then, yeah, then that that absolutely needs to happen. What are some promising organizations or publications that people on the dissident right should keep their eyes out for? Sure. Well, there are many of them. I would say. I would say Chronicles. Maybe I'm a little biased because I write there, but fantastic I think Chronicle- magazine. By the absolutely, way. absolutely. So I believe for, and I'm not getting paid to say this for the record. <laughs> I believe for five dollars a month, uh, you subscribe and you get access to uh, the print copy uh, the, the of, of the magazine. I have one sitting in front of me here. I mean, it's very visually pleasing. You've got tons of great content, and you also get access to the archives. And the great thing about Chronicles is. That you know they were publishing people like Sam Francis and a lot of the paleocons, uh, Paul Godfrey, of course, who still writes there, and that stuff. You know the conservative establishment did its best in, I believe, the late '90s, maybe early 2000s, to marginalize these people and to malign them to say these are bad, you know, racist, you know, whatever else. Obviously, none of that's true. But there's been a resurgence in interest in paleoconservatism. People like Pedro Gonzalez have brought Sam Francis back to the foreground, many others as well. And, you know, Chronicles Magazine has, uh, you know, the the website, the magazine, they have tons of current commentary on Sam Francis. They have a lot of old Sam Francis available in the archives. And, you know, also Paul Godfrey, again, Paul Godfrey doesn't get enough credit for being, you know, his intellectual contributions to the right. As far as an intellectual historian goes, uh, I am hard pressed to think of a better one on the right. And, you know, the fact that this legend basically is still at it, still writing articles, still commenting on what's going on in the world is is great. So uh, many other great sites out there. Uh, I'm, if, I'm just going to go with one because if I name if I name just one, then I think people will be OK. If I name like five or ten, then the people who don't get named will be like, he named all these other sites and, <laughs> and publications except for mine. So I'll just I'll just stick to one. There are obviously others I would I would love to go with, but. Yeah, some some people will then like start accusing you of probably being like a Fed or like a subversive because you didn't name drop the their particular the publication. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> if, if someone is not promoting you at a particular point in time, they're clearly being paid by the government. Now, big picture, where do you see nationalism going in the U.S.? Will it be something centered around a more Caesarist style project at a national level? Or do you see a breakup or balkanization of sorts happening? 
Uh, sure. So I'll, I'll say this. Caesar was a liberal. Caesar was a libtard even. But Caesarism in kind of an abstract sense of, uh, in a colloquial sense of a right-wing strongman, that, you know, I can, I can definitely vibe with that. And I'm not going to nitpick. I still use the term Caesarism. But as an interesting historical anecdote, right, we think of Caesar, oh, he went after the corrupt, you know, there's this kind of this popular mythology as he, you know, went after the, the corrupt system and whatever else. Well, the, the, uh, he was, I'm pretty sure he expanded, he expanded the citizenship and the franchise and things of that nature to non, non-Romans, to foreigners. That's, that's really not what we want. And that's kind of something we're up against. But, and the fact that Caesar was fairly, uh, somewhat of a liberal for his time, he was also very xenophilic, right? In the sense of he, you know, uh, like liberals do today, he glorified and romanticized foreign civilizations. He had the love affair with Cleopatra, of course. And part of the reason they went after him was this guy, you know, he came back from Egypt and he's he's like acting like an Egyptian, right? So I, I think the fact that Caesar was a liberal and he accomplished all of that is, is fascinating because that opens the door for there being a blue Caesar, a liberal Caesar. People have pointed to someone like Gavin Newsom. There is the very real potential for someone to come along left of center and to have this angry, fiery message the way Trump did, but from their side to say, hey, you know what? We're going to war with the Republicans. The gloves are coming off. Biden didn't go hard enough. And that that's a very scary possibility because Gavin Newsom appears to be he's well-spoken, he's charismatic, he's appears to be very cunning and, you know, governors very popular often in presidential rates, uh, races. So people people should be aware there's totally potential for a liberal uh, blue Caesar. Um, but your question, absolutely. Nevertheless, valid Caesarism. I, I really do think we need a right wing strongman. I really uh, think that's, you know, and I'm not advocating for any civil war or anything extreme, any overthrow of the government, nothing like that. But really, I think what needs to happen is you need to get the right person into the presidency and you need to change the laws. And in order to increase the power of the presidency, I think that, you know, one of these great NRX neo reactionary talking points that totally holds up is the need to have a strong central authority. So much of the issue that we see today is that authority, power is just continually granted to these bureaucracies, these federal bureaucracies. They're run by, run by these career bureaucrats. We're often placed there by bad presidents. So it's it's not really, there's there's very little accountability and it just gets hard to get anything good done. So I think getting the right president in, and you know this is far-fetched, but crazier things have happened historically, doing away with things like judicial review, that's a big issue for us. You know, just getting rid of or altering the nature of these intelligence agencies, right? Obviously, we need to have some intelligence agencies. The question is whether or not the current ones can be reformed. I think the answer probably is no. Um, and the creation of new ones, uh, you need to fire people who are loyal to the old regime. You need to rein in the universities. You need to do something about the media. And I don't see any of that being accomplished with the current limited amount of power that the president has. So again, going back to our what we discussed earlier with regard to the importance of focusing on power, the, you get the right guy in there. He needs to use whatever power he has to get more power, to get more power. And that that really is what needs to be done. Now, can we count on that happening? No, uh, we really we really don't know where things are headed. So much of the right success is going to be defined by the right's ability to take advantage of just black swan events of these incalculable uh, happenings, so to speak. And on that subject as well, I would say that you know no no empire lasts forever, right? The globalist American empire is is not going to last forever, and. There, you know, you look at the Soviet Union, which was imperial, of course, uh, was this larger geopolitical, multi-ethnic, multi-racial, uh, to some extent too, uh, geopolitical entity that didn't, you know, it didn't last forever. It didn't last forever, of course. And when it uh, fell apart, the central authority ceased to be able to control all of its satellite countries and territories and so forth. It, it, it dissolved into smaller states. And there's, in the event that we, we're not able to right the ship at the national level, in the event that the federal bureaucracy is just impossible to change, and I think it's worthwhile absolutely to try to change it in the meantime, there's always the potential that the country, you know, the federal government just 100, 200 years from now, it's really anyone's guess, uh, kind of, you know, seizes the ability, 
it no longer has control over the states, that the states assert themselves as, as new states, new territories, maybe come together to create uh, new countries on their own. And, you know, that seems very LARPy. Uh, but again, history tells us that these things often happen. You can, Plenty of other examples. Yugoslavia, that fell apart in a really bloody and ugly manner, which no, no one, most of us don't want. I, I think, you know, the, the people that are really chomping at the bit for, you know, blood and, and whatever else, I think, I think the people left of center, right? Most of us, we don't want these tensions, political, ethnic, or whatever, to reach a boiling point. We don't. You know, the SPLC will call us bigots and whatever else for raising awareness to some of the realities of increasingly diverse society. But yeah, we don't want any of that, of course. So, you know, in the event, in the event that we can't write the ship at the federal level, then just kind of, I think, focusing on state polarization is is what's needed. Uh, consolidating power in in the red states, right? Convincing conservatives to move to move to red states and just enacting whatever policies you can there, trying to just say F you basically to the federal government. I, I advocate red states doing that now, just to be very clear, but whether or not that's that's a path to, that's kind of the secondary path. That's the secondary path. Extreme states' rights and just kind of having states be bastions of resistance against leftism and globalism. But so long as the, the federal government is still up for grabs, so to speak, then that really should be, that's, that's, as long as that exists, that's the most powerful institution. So we should absolutely be trying to pursue that again through peaceful political means as much as possible. The last I would say is, is, you know, occasionally on Twitter, you'll see it's probably more common among the, I, I don't know, the second amendment militia crowd, whatever you see people who are advocating for civil war saying it's going to happen. It's inevitable. I, I really don't think that's going to happen, and I think that there are real part of me dangers to that that sort of rhetoric uh, because you look at the Whitmer kidnapping case, and you know that's the logical conclusion of people thinking a civil war is going to happen, advocating for it, heaven forbid, actually planning for it, is that the FBI uh, entraps a bunch of gullible people, and that that is used as you know whatever the right engages in political violence tries to is even just seen as, as doing that, even if they aren't, or any other type of illegal activity, you're playing into the hand of the establishment. The establishment is not afraid of a couple of militia bozos, sorry, plotting to you know overthrow something or whatever else, right? In the case of the Whitmer kidnapping case, I mean, that, that was largely hatched and carried out by uh, FBI agents or at the very least informants. So, uh, and Revolver.News has done fantastic uh, work exposing a lot of that and drawing some parallels to January 6th. So you just, I would, I would just really, I, no, no one who keeps up with my content is like a civil war guy, probably not your content, but that does need to be pushed back against because that's not going to be how we win. And that's actually going to make it harder for the change that we would like to see to happen. Any other thoughts that you have before we depart? Any other thoughts? I would just encourage everyone who listens to your your fine podcast to uh, support you uh, financially if there is a way that that can be done. I don't know if you have uh, any. Yes, uh, Substack. You have a Substack. Okay. If you're listening right now and you're not subscribed to Jose Nino's Substack, subscribe to it. Throw them, you know, five, 10 a month, whatever it is. Uh, There are a lot of people, you know, content creators need to be supported. And I'm very blessed with very generous supporters that I can keep doing this full time. But, um, you know, we need to have a voice. We need to have a voice. And most people are not going to work in politics professionally. So, you know, if I, I think for most people listening to this, just especially if you're younger, do well in school. If you're not doing that, learn a trade, start a business, just apply yourself to something that's going to get you a good, good income, start a family, uh, get right with God, uh, religion, very important thing. Not for everyone, but uh, it's, 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 you know, at the very least worth trying out, worth trying out. And, you know, beyond that, beyond that, you should be, you know, find a way to contribute. If it's, you know, making money and supporting people who are out there doing it, that's great. If it's getting involved in local politics, that can be very good. Even if you're not doing anything that's particularly interesting, you're learning how things work. You're making connections. That is good as well. And also we need, we need people to work professionally in, in actual, in government, right? In any conceivable win scenario for us. We need people with with real right-wing views, paleocon, dissident right, whatever, to have experience in administration, in government, running campaigns, and whatever else. 
So it's really up to everyone to figure out the best way to sort things out. But also, the last thing I will say is I will, I will address some of the black pillars out there, people who are feeling black pilled, dejected. It's totally understandable that after the whirlwind that was the first turn, basically 2016 to 2020, that looking at how things have played out, you know, Trump didn't get his second term. Biden is, is, is destroying the country. FBI cracking down on patriots, so on and so forth. Uh, it's understandable that you'd be dejected, but this, this is far, this is far from over. 2016 was the beginning. It was not the end. Some people have made the argument that it was kind of a final hurrah for historic conservative America. That's, that's not the case at all. Um, these things ebb and flow. They go up and down. There are going to be wins. There are going to be tragic losses. You just have to kind of take, you learn to take these uh, things on the chin. And, you know, if, if people are feeling like really, really blackpilled about the state of the world, oftentimes the antidote to that is for focusing on yourself, right? Focusing on yourself. So, you know, because I look, I, I deal with this stuff every day. I've personally been uh, subjected to quite a bit of harassment from the various power centers of the country. I've been deplatformed. I've been subpoenaed by the uh, you know, the January 6th committee, I've, I've had all sorts of stuff happen, you know, and you look, you know, SPLC writes all sorts of unfair things about me. Media says unfair things about me, whatever. And, you know, all of that would be far more grounds for me to be depressed and blackpilled about the state of the country and whatnot. But I, I, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident about that. We are eventually going to win. And, uh, you know, regardless, you just can't, don't let the politics get you down. And if you're really depressed about the state of things, it, oftentimes there's there's a personal there's a personal solution there there isn't a political solution so find a way to contribute find a way to make a difference support people like Jose subscribe to his Substack and you know focus on bettering yourself that's really the best advice I, I could give to anyone listening to this oh and feel free to plug your stuff Patrick sure uh, the only things I'll really show for is my Telegram channel t.me slash Patrick Casey USA. And my YouTube channel, which is Restoring Order. If you search for Restoring Order Patrick Casey, you'll find it. Uh, I do live streams. I've been toying with the idea of doing shorter videos. We'll see because I, I you know, it's it's either that or writing articles. Um, and I'm kind of on the fence as to whether you know which is going to reach more people, which is going to be more advantageous. But um, you know, if you follow me on Telegram, everything I'm doing gets posted there, including this interview after it's done. So yeah, thank you for the opportunity to to shill. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.